Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, January the 5th, 2024. We live in very odd times, in my view. Maybe it's because I'm odd, but they seem increasingly surreal. There was a, an interesting piece in the information, one of the more reliable um, platforms, news uh, sites for tech news, uh, about how AI will or won't affect the 2024 US election. They're reasonably optimistic, but it, it, it speaks to me of a bizarre kind of juxtaposition that increasingly seems to be occurring in our age of AI. On the one hand, we know exactly what we believe. On the one hand, we're very much sure of uh, how we think about the world. On the other hand, we don't trust anything we see because AI is everywhere and fakery is everywhere. So perhaps it's the reverse of the traditional Christian world in which we weren't sure about ourselves, but we knew what we would see uh, in the 21st century. Uh, we know what we think, but we don't trust our eyes, and our eyes have become this odd appendage. One man who's given a lot of thought to these strange contradictions is my guest today. Eric uh, Salveggio is from Cybernetic Forests. That's uh, his website. Uh, he's an artist, thinker, writer. And uh, quoting here, um, he sifts through the techno-social debris so I thought I'd get him on the show to help collectively uh, sift through this debris. He's joining us from Rochester in upstate New York. Eric, is there any truth to what I just said? That th th It's this weird juxtaposition. Everybody knows what they think. There's no one in the middle, say, on the upcoming election. Everyone has very strong views on Trump and Biden and blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, we increasingly can't trust our eyes. So it's this weird digital cleavage between our minds and our eyes. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think ultimately what we what we the way we process the images is through their captions, right? We we look at an image and we we read the text underneath it and we decide what it says that way and and there's no real orientation to what's actually in the image anymore so someone could tell us you know this is donald trump getting arrested uh and what do we know we don't we don't we don't know we can't know uh and that's an actual case so certainly uh it is a time where more and more of our life more than ever certainly is is mediated through screens including interpersonal relationships which means the pictures that someone shares with us we may not even be able to trust and so certainly i would agree it's it's interesting times so what does that tell us about these images are they all important or entirely irrelevant as you say um if someone put an image up on x uh of donald trump being arrested or naked with some disreputable character of one kind or another. 50% uh, of people would entirely dismiss it automatically. The other 50% would say, oh, now we've got him. Now he has to resign. You know, I wonder myself, 
how many people actually share these images or look at these images and actually care if they're true. I think it's sometimes enough that they they kind of these images sort of show something that they they want to sort of use to poke someone else in the eye. Uh, they're they're more of a a tool for achieving or saying something and for expressing something politically or or personally or whatever it may be, then it really is about being a source of truth or reality. I think a lot of people circulate mistruths and quote unquote fake news because not because they believe it, but because it says something about them. It says something about what they want to believe. And it's the strange tension where suddenly a news article is no longer about getting information. It's getting shared in order to say something about you. It's suddenly very personal to post this to a Facebook wall. And I, I do think it doesn't necessarily mean that the people who share this information always believe this information or that they're falling for these images. Um, I, I, think, I think there's something more nuanced emerging in the type of behavior and the type of sort of signposting that we put up about ourselves online that these images help facilitate. Yeah, and I don't know what comes first. We live in an age of the cult of or, or the authentic where people value themselves on their own authenticity. I always, I've got the Ariana Huffington rule. If anyone actually, if the word authentic comes out of their mouth, it means by definition they're inauthentic. And Ariana Huffington, I think, is living proof of that. Um, and of course, we live in an age of profound, and I use that word carefully, inauthenticity, because everything is a fake. So in an age where everything is a fake, Eric, does that explain why we have the cult of the authentic, which is unreachable, unrealizable? It's rather like God. Yeah, I, authenticity has always been a tricky issue, because who defines it? I think the the definition of authenticity that you know we might fall upon when it comes to images when it comes to media when it comes to ai we used to think about images as authentic if we could somehow get to the bottom of it if we could look at it and find our way through it to find out the story behind it if we could talk to the photographer um and and then assess if we could trust the photographer and now there is no photographer um, these images that we see are, are you know, we would talk to the prompt writer, I guess. But well, ultimately, I just saw a thing when I was preparing for this uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Hey, Jen. Uh, G, not J, uh, H E Y G E N. Uh, one one uh, image which seems completely real to me, but a complete fake created by one of these new AI companies called Hey, Jen. I'm sure there'll be many more of them where. We have someone can take our image, our video, and our voice and create, make anything they want. I may not even be here right now. You may not. I may not even exist. <laughs> I, I've always wondered about that, Eric, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that too. I, and it's it's actually that video. I'm I'm very curious to to look at it more closely. It was Yeah, it was I can't believe it's as good as the guy. I, I don't know whether the guy was warning us or advertising for it. <laughs> right. Right. I, I do think one of the things that's been very true about AI images in general, and, and this, doesn't, this doesn't mean to hand wave away any of the very real concerns, but one of the things that I, I have seen, having been in this space for a long time, just about 
maybe five years ago we had um, this person does not exist, which which was a website you could go to and it would just generate an image of a face. And it was a photorealistic face and everyone was sort of shocked at, at how realistic they were. But now if you look at those images, I think there's a kind of literacy that's evolved that we can look at and we can see certain kinds of tells uh, that we wouldn't have known to look for five years ago. But now we can sort of see the glitches and the weird uh, aspects that the teeth are a little off, the ears aren't aligned. Um, well, most they're... of our teeth and our ears are a little <laughs> off, aren't they, Eric? Well, that's that's true. Uh, but but I'm saying things like they'd have just one tooth uh, um. as in their mouth. Um, or mismatched earrings, despite maybe, it being a maybe professional imperfections, photo. Really profound imperfections. I, I've forgotten the name of the guy who just died, the lead singer of the uh, of the Pixies. Do you remember him, the Irish guy who just died? He had incredibly bad teeth and huge ears. Oh, so oh. He, he seemed unbelievable, but I think if you're that unbelievable, you're probably real. <laughs> right. Fair, fair point. Uh, I mean, what about... And and all this is in, in in the same time this obsession with not just visual authenticity but intellectual authenticity. This week, there's this hysteria in both on the left and the right in America about plagiarism. Uh, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gale, the ex-president, was accused of plagiarism. Conservatives forced her out, and then. Um, uh, liberals found that the wife of uh, one of the wealthy men who forced Gay out is herself a plagiarist. Is there a connection between this obsession with plagiarism? And ironically enough, both of their supposed plagiarism were, was uncovered by AI tech. And this world of complete fakery? I would say, you know... The wonderful thing about AI is that it it doesn't actually have an in, intended meaning in what it's what it's producing, and and so it, at the very least, it's it's plagiarism isn't well you know in the interface isn't passing itself off as somebody else's as its own ideas. I I, I think when you when you get into conversations about plagiarism when you when it's 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 almost inevitable for for people to to when you're emerged submerged in as much information as we are to to scrape some of these things up and sort of subconsciously reproduce them and i haven't looked very closely at at the plagiarism allegations that are here um but i do know that that this this is just a thing that happens um i think the weaponization of it is is a little too convenient um, for the current conversation, uh, you know, everything else that's been going on. But as an instructor, when I get something and I say, oh, I think this is generated by AI, or I, th I think this student is, is stealing it from some other source, one of the problems I face is, is, again, that verification question. I can go and I can look for the source if some if a human has written it and it's been published somewhere. But if it's GPT or a uh, AI chatbot that's generated it, that's irreproducible. I can't go and find that information. So there's a there's a real difference there between the types of stuff that the the AI is scraping out and up and reproducing, and the way that humans have sort of accidentally quoted without proper citation or or whatever they've done. 
And again, I haven't looked too closely at the specifics there, um, but I do think in the AI conversation, I've been really wary of instructors who are going out and finding GPT generated text. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really, on. I mean, yeah, a little bit. It's a well, but more than a little bit. I mean, everyone's going after everyone else, and everyone's burning in public, including Neri Oxman, Bill Ackman's wife, and um, Claudine Gay. I wonder if it's a coincidence that they're both women. Where do you stand on, or sit, or think on the uh, the New York Times uh, OpenAI case? You you touched on that about these new uh, engines or platforms, whatever you want to call them, algorithms, scraping our collective information and then just somehow spitting it back at us without attribution and without economic reward. Mm -hmm. And obscuring it, very often obscuring the sources, which is one of the big differences, one of the big differences between something that Google does when you go and you type in New York Times in a particular story or, or whatever, and you get a little snippet, at least you know you're going where it's come from. And if you look at the actual evidence that's been presented in the New York Times versus OpenAI case, they show you large amounts of text, multiple paragraphs taken from New York Times articles that are not attributed to the New York Times, that are generated as if the GPT-4 is the one that has written it. And the problem with that, obviously, it's it's intellectual property, right, that belongs to the New York Times, but also Microsoft is, seems to be positioning itself to say, hey, these tools can be used for news for as a reliable source of information. And I think the New York Times is right to say, slow down. This is, this is our content you're taking from us and reproducing without any attribution, but also the damage to news, the actual damage to, to reported and fact-checked and verified information, given that these things have a tendency to hallucinate or reproduce information that, that isn't real, that isn't factual, but is statistically likely, right? Um, the words might appear together a lot and the information it's scanned, but when it spits it out, there's no truth there. There's no accuracy. There's no fact-checking. And so this really upends the entire idea of what a journalistic uh, effort is. So I think the New York Times is in a good position. Um, I think there's some real differences between what OpenAI is saying is, is how their technology relates to past technologies like web caches. Um, but yeah, I, I, it does tie into that question of authenticity as well, doesn't it? It certainly does. We're speaking with Eric Salvaggio of Cybernetic Forests, a man who is heroically sifting through our current techno-social debris, and there's a lot of it. Um, what would you make, Eric, of the conventional Silicon Valley argument, people like Vinod Kosler, that everyone borrows historically, and there's no difference between, quote-unquote, the borrowing that OpenAI is doing from the borrowing of great artists or writers or musicians. Bob Dylan, of course, comes to mind. Dylan and uh, Steve Jobs have a, a, a peculiar kind of affinity, both great thieves and not shy to actually acknowledge it. So there's a lot of talk these days about how everything is a remix. Um, and I think there's some degree of truth to that. But one of the things that I think is also really important is if you're looking at 
if you're looking at scientific research or you're looking at artistic traditions, there's always an ongoing dialogue and there's always a practice of citation and reference uh, that says where ideas have come from. And that actually creates more interesting work because it's traceable. You can look at the conversation that led up to something that's been produced, a work of art, uh, to, to put it in sort of simple terms, is the result of everything that I've gone out and seen, but it's not exclusively that. There's also ways of thinking about the particular context in which I saw something, uh, you know, and that can change the way that I interpret that information. And that can change the way that I process it. In, in my head, when I'm making something, I'm thinking about these images and, and the things that I've seen before, and I'm putting a sort of personal blend into this. I think when you compare that to AI, what is really missing there is that sense of embodiment. There's no eye, right? There's no eyeball in the AI. The AI is not going out and looking at stuff. That's a common misperception, misconception. I, the AI actually doesn't exist until all of this stuff is gathered and a model is built off of all of this stuff becoming a soup because Without that, there is no sort of robot or, or computer program sitting on someone's desktop waiting to see images. It is literally the result of the images being collected and presented together as what we call a model. Um, so without getting into too much technical detail, there's a vast sum of difference between an artist going out and looking at the world and filtering that through me and my own emotional experience and a program, a computer program that analyzes these images and the pixels and the arrangements of pixels through math and cannot exist until it does that. Uh, so really vast distinctions going on there between the actual process. Now we could talk about the end result, right? Maybe the end result says, well, it's taken all this human culture and it's recombined it. But then we get into the question of agency. Is the machine actually making decisions about what goes next to what? What images appear and how they appear? Turns out they actually don't. They're actually applying a kind of mathematical analysis from billions of images to a single frame of random static and rebuilding images based on literally random constellations of pixels. Uh, I call it like looking up at the nighttime sky and someone tells you that's the Big Dipper. But when you look up and there is no Big Dipper, you sort of find it anyway because I told you it was there. That's what these machines do. They're not making decisions. They're not grappling with any kind of agency or experience in the production of these images. They're reapplying a learned mathematical formula to a random picture of noise. Once you start talking about it in those terms, I think the distinction becomes really clear between what an artist does and what these tools do. Yeah, and if you want more clarity on comparing OpenAI with what humans do, I would suggest have a shot with OpenAI and then subscribe to Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, um, a, a wonderful new publication curated by real humans, written by real humans. I don't think there's an ounce of AI in there. Uh, Going to run a short feature on Liberties and then we'll be back uh, with our guest, uh, Eric Salvaggio, who is sifting through the techno-social debris. I want to go back to the origins of the Enlightenment 
with Eric and, and talk about the insurance industry and how he compares the origins of AI with the origins of the insurance industry in the in 17th century London. So we'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Particularly invaluable in our age of AI, you can subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Eric Salvaggio of cyberneticforests.com, an artist and thinker on our digital future and our digital past, perhaps. We're sifting through the uh, techno-social debris of our age. Eric, I was particularly struck with a, a piece that um, you wrote recently um, on the original sin of generative AI. You compare its origins with the origins of the insurance industry in, in 17th and 18th century London. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, sure. Um, really, what I'm coming at is what we're calling generative AI today is really not so new. Uh, there's a long history, and a lot of that history is actually data analytics. It's the conversations we've been having about big data for at least me personally for at least a decade, and I think it's been going on probably since we started thinking about Web 2.0 and websites that would gather data and this idea that the work you did online, the information you put online is sort of there for companies to, to analyze. And that goes back to this insurance industry and, and Lloyd's of London and, and the kind of conversations that uh, folks in the shipping industry would be having about the risk associated with certain types of journeys and boats um, but also questions about slavery. And this, all of this was happening at a, at a huge remove from the risks and the sort of social impacts that, that these practices had on, on human lives. And so folks were sitting in coffee shops, having these conversations. Lloyd's was a coffee shop. And they started collecting that information, these conversations. And they started using it to make predictions about boats and which boats would be best to insure, and it was a betting market. You would bet that that boat was not going to last, this boat would, and that is essentially the origin of insurance. But it was also the origin of data analytics and this question of where is the information and who is the person analyzing that information? Sorry, where's the information source? Where's it coming from? What is it measuring? And the person sorting that information and thinking about that information and analyzing that information at a great remove. And I think that these two things have to be understood kind of in conversation with one another. That generative AI is really a prediction. I call it a hypothetical image. When you create an image with these tools, it's actually predicting something based on the data that is within it. And we have to think about where that data came from. A lot of that data is coming from people like you and I posting something on social media, posting an image of ourselves on vacation, for example, might be in the training data. And there's other kinds of more harmful stuff too, which we may talk about in a moment. But I do kind of fundamentally say, we talk about generative AI as if it operates at this remove, 
But actually deep within the training data are all kinds of things, personal things, traumatic things that we really should have some control over, some greater say in how it's used because it does circulate. It gets put back into these pictures, into these images. And I'm not so comfortable with that. Uh, you mentioned slavery and subject obviously comes up in lots of different ways as the foundations of American wealth, American capitalism. We're going to do a show on that in a couple of weeks. And we've done many shows on it. I, I'm not entirely clear, though, of the connection you're making. I mean, there was, I, I guess, a connection between the origins of the modern slave industry and the insurance industry. But how, how does it all connect? For me, I think it's fundamentally about this idea of prediction. And they would literally sort of predict whether or not there would be a mutiny, a slave mutiny on a ship. But you're also talking about boats that would go crash into things, right? And you're talking about the people on those boats. You're talking about lives. And, and to some extent, you're you're placing bets on those lives. And, and that's what was happening. Not you, but, but and not folks in maybe the contemporary insurance agency, but at the origin of it. This idea of prediction, what I think is in common with today's sort of data analytics industry is that we don't really look at who is involved, who we're measuring, the terms and the conditions we're applying on people when we measure them. There's a lot of bias sort of buried into data sets. And that can include even just the questions we're asking and how we're collecting that data. The things we leave out, the things we put in are a reflection of bias. And if there's a happening at a remove, then we really run the risk of ignoring the types of things that I think are really get at the heart of, of where this data comes from, which oftentimes could be human suffering, um, you know, in, in injustices, imbalances, in and in, in, and inequities in our social fabric. So I don't know if that answers your question. I hope so. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but are you suggesting that the insurance industry was one of the major economic and data edifice, edifices of the Enlightenment? Uh, in, in some ways, it seems as if the AI is the, the climax of this data enlightenment. Are you suggesting that there is inevitably a dark side of it, that we got the enlightenment all wrong? There's been an ongoing debate for the last two or three hundred years about the enlightenment, about whether it was really enlightened um, or, or much darker. Is, is that what you're touching on in, in your work? And is that how you see AI in broader historic terms? I do think there, when we talk about statistics, when we talk about pattern recognition, we often have this myth of objectivity. And, and honestly, with AI, for a long time, machine learning was literally positioned as, oh, it's free of human bias. I think fundamentally, that's a mistake. I think that when we think about framing the question, framing the collection of data, thinking about cleaning data, what we cut out of data sets, what we include in data sets are shaped fundamentally by the bias of the person building that. There is an attempt to be objective in the way we put these things together, but that objectivity has its limits. We, there's a, there's a, you know, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know the limit of our own bias. We don't know the different ways of seeing that we don't see. 
and if we don't have a personal experience that might explain why the data is a certain way, then we don't actually know how to question and challenge that. So to me, the idea of unbiased data sets is just fundamentally not true. There's bias baked in, and I think the very endeavor of then turning that data into something actionable, especially a set of predictions, such as who gets bail, who gets a mortgage, who gets to go to college, those types of things is very dangerous. And we've turned away from that conversation when we stop talking about things like automated surveillance and started talking about generative AI. And I can give you an example of this, a really concrete example of this, which comes from my early experiences in trying to produce images with AI. There was a data set, which was uh, basically taken from Flickr, uh, downloaded Creative Commons licensed images, and it would produce pictures of human faces. And I endeavored to create a variety of faces, diverse representations of faces, in order to share them literally on Wikipedia, of all places, as for the article on generative uh, AI. Uh, and, and what I found was that I could not generate the face of a Black woman at the same level of sophistication and detail that I could generate a face of a white woman or a white man. And part of me said, this is very strange. I couldn't make any sense of it. And so I went to that data set and I poked around. I downloaded about 4,000 images and I manually went through them. And I tried to find what the patterns were that the machine learning model was reproducing. And it turns out there were vastly more images of white women and white men than there were black women. And these data sets were exactly the same that at the time were being used to train automated surveillance systems that would say, this is the person that is in this parking lot at the wrong time. Let's talk to that person, right? It would misrecognize black faces more than white faces. So there really is a justice issue rolled up into this idea there, there is, uh, yeah i kind of agree there is and there isn't i was trying to create i'm probably going to get into trouble for this a black female in uh, generative ai as an image mm -hmm. and it, it took a bit of time i don't think the algorithm it, 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 it struggled a little bit but once i convinced it or explained what i wanted to do it actually did an interesting job. Um, in your essay, you you write about Monticello and uh, and, and Jefferson. Of course, Jefferson is the classic uh, example of the enlightened man who also was a slave owner uh, and took sexual advantage of his slaves. Why is Monticello important and interesting in in your argument and in your vision of the problem with AI? To me, Monticello represents a kind of testing ground for technology. Uh, there were a lot of technologies built at Monticello that were designed to obscure labor altogether. Uh, you could, as I wrote in the article, you could go and you could have a dinner and talk to Thomas Jefferson about how terrible slavery was while uh, people he enslaved were in the basement loading up what we call a dumbwaiter that would then serve up the food, which was specifically designed so that you wouldn't have contact with the enslaved people at Monticello. There were a whole bunch of these types of technologies that were built in that way. 
um, you know, wine bottle rotation tool tool. Someone puts the wine bottle and then rotates it around. So you don't have to see the person serving the wine. And this speaks to, I think, broad issues around the justice issue and the labor issue, which I think are interconnected. But there's a real obscurity in labor that I think has been perpetuated in these technological advancements, which is to say, we're going to hide a lot of that labor. Um, a lot of the AI stuff we have, the interface is really designed to say that there is no person involved. And in fact, there is, there's lots of people involved. If you're talking about a data set uh, that like OpenAI is using for a large language model to produce text, well, who wrote all those words? Uh, humans did. When I mean, you're talking about an image generation tool, who made all those images that are in that training set? Well, humans did. And this is a kind of, uh, I think it's almost a kind of technique for saying, well, workers aren't really there, right? We have machines and the machines are doing it themselves. And that's an inherent part of artificial intelligence is this, this idea that there, there even is an intelligence there that is artificial. Actually, it's very much living and breathing intelligence. It's very much uh, as, as part of the work that these machines and tools are doing. What about coming to back to Jefferson? Is I mean, of course, Jefferson, uh, Monticello was, seems to be Jefferson's uh, greater sort of crowning architectural achievement in which all his skills and visions were brought together. But of course, as I said, uh, Jefferson himself is his his morality certainly is quite checkered. Is there something in Monticello in in the building itself that should be a warning for us about AI? It's seeming perhaps perfection, but the the closer you look, the less perfect it appears. I think you could say you could almost transfer word for word what you've just said to almost any AI generated image right now where it creates these very beautiful or you know your definitions of beauty vary but they're they seem to be technically proficient a lot of people seem to love them and i think that's what's important is to look and scratch that surface and look at the labor behind it the labor that makes that possible right the kind of work that is being erased by the beauty of the surface uh, I think that's an important lesson, and that's the lesson that I bring into that I try to bring into that article around technology in general, which is don't be deceived by the beauty of right. And the of course, Monticello was of built uh, on a slave plantation, which Jefferson exactly. claimed not to approve of, but seemed to take personal and economic enjoyment. Finally, we live in an age. Also, we talked at the beginning about fake images in your piece. You, you feature some artificial images of, of, of the Holocaust and also of uh, Palestinian suffering. In an age where we have these images of suffering thrown at us, whether they're dead migrants on beaches in Greece or, or, or dead Palestinians in, in Gaza um, or raped uh, Israeli women, what's your point? What is it? Where's the the paradox, a very tragic paradox of the ease of which we look at images of suffering, the actual suffering in the world, and the ability for people to fake suffering in images? 
I think it's a, this is a very dense question. So I, I, I beg everyone's uh, sort of de dealing well, with me. Dense, as because we're it. sifting through the techno-social yeah. debris of, uh, of your, uh, of your uh, cybernetic forest. So we would expect de density, Eric. Anything less <laughs> would be disappointing. Well, uh, thank you. Um, but I, I, so there's a couple of things to unpack there. The first is there is, there are images being sold of victims for lack of a better word. For some reason, people are using AI to generate images of victims of various historical atrocities, disasters, whatever, which can then be sort of recirculated. And why your question is why and why does that why should that concern us part of why it concerns us is this verification question when you can generate ai images then what really becomes the risk is that someone points to a real image and says that real image cannot be evidence of an atrocity it's generated by ai and look at all these other images that are generated by ai therefore you can't trust any image at all that's a risk. That's a real danger. The other danger is that there's a sanitization of trauma that occurs mm. in these images. They look like uh, Hollywood productions. There's they're, they're, they're perfect images of suffering, dead babies, yes. unhappy girls, uh, groups of Jews gassed by the Nazis. And when you aestheticize that, when you make that pretty and sort of palatable mm. there's 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 something i think that we should uh there's something revulsive about that um i think we should be revulsive is it any worse uh, sorry to interrupt derek we gotta yeah. finish in a second but is it any worse than spielberg spielbergian schindler's list like images some people would uh repulsed by those the way in which hollywood treated the holocaust Certainly when they're put into dialogue with real images that are documentation of things that are going on that demand a humanitarian response. Um, someone showing me a film, a sanitized fictional version of a story might do that work. Um, the problem with AI images is I don't think that they are. Um, there may be some potential for doing that, but at this moment, I really don't see that. The other issue I have is where are these images making these images from? How does the how do these machines know what a refugee looks like? Well, how do we know what a refugee looks like? What is the training data for these terms and how have they been sanitized? How have they been biased to certain arguments and certain expectations that might actually limit us from extending empathy to the real victims, the real people that this is actually happening too. Yeah, and everyone seems we... so easy to offend. Um, Huxley, of course, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, wrote famously Brave New World. He also wrote Eyeless in Gaza. We're all, borrowing from that metaphor, we're all eyeless in Gaza these days. Finally, Eric, what do we, and this comes back to where we started, what should we be trusting in this age of AI? If not our eyes, our senses, or our lack of senses? I look for the answer to that question every day. Um, I think it's. I think that we really need to have 
more conversations and I know uh, that's, that, that's always answer. a bit of a, an opt out <laughs> when you talk about conversation. But it really is, I think we need to have more, more, I don't know, I don't know what to say. Not conversations, but we need to be able to talk to other people. We need to be able to see and hear from the position of eyewitnesses, but we need to be able to trust that. And at this moment, there's no simple solution. Um, but I really do think that talking and getting a sort of personal and human presence in the ground, which is the work that journalists used to do and can do and do many of them. I don't mean to besmirch journalism, but that eye on the ground verification, the trust of that verification, but also who do we talk to? Who do those journalists talk to about what's going on? What is the data that we are collecting? I think the, the, the only anchor we can really have is, is just to, to try to find some common ground where we can trust some kind of scaffolding on which we can build further trust instead of scratching away and knocking scaff that scaffolding down constantly. And I think that AI, unfortunately, is really positioned to be knocking that scaffolding scaffolding down rather than building it up. And I would love to see some more serious contemplation of how AI could come at that differently, but I just don't see it at the moment from coming from industry and I barely see it coming from policy.